Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Grand Lum, who is author with the late Bertram Levine of America's Peacemakers, the Community Relations Service and Civil Rights. This is published by the University of Missouri Press in 2020, um, and it is an update and sort of expansion on the history that was originally written um, about 20 years ago. Um, But I'm going to let Grand talk a little bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome Grand to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Welcome to the podcast, Grand. Thank you, Lily, and thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to to doing this. So my current job is, and I think it's always important to recognize your employer, uh, is Menlo College, uh, which is here in Silicon Valley in California. It's a small liberal arts college with primarily business degrees, uh, a a wonderful place, and I'm the provost and vice president of academic affairs there. So how I came to this book is primarily because I became the director of the Community Relations Service, the agency that the book is about. And for those who do not know, the Community Relations Service is an agency within the Department of Justice created by the 1964 Civil Rights Act to focus on resolving racial disputes, disagreements, uh, and that was the purpose of it and has done so, we'll get into it, since 1964. When I was being considered for the position and I was nominated by President Obama and it required Senate confirmation, I decided I need to learn more, a little bit more about the Community Relations Service. I had known about it because I had worked at a a company uh, called Conflict Management Inc. And some of our colleagues uh, provided negotiation training for, uh, for the Community Relations Service. So that's when I first learned about it in the early 1990s. And I was impressed, like, wow, that's, I never heard of them. That, they, do, they do great work. When the opportunity arose to become, uh, to join the, the Obama administration, this is the one agency I really wanted to be at. This, I'm, I have spent my career as a mediator, and certainly a part of the work has certainly been dealing with difficult issues like race, like religion, uh, like sexual orientation. And I thought this would be the place I would want to make a difference. So I found that there had been a book written I and I read it. And that's when I really got astounded because I didn't know all that history that Lyndon Baines Johnson wanted to make it happen. That was primarily because of that president and that he really put his power, all his power and all his his network as LBJ was was wont to do uh, in, in, in this type of thing. And so that's how I became aware of it. Uh, it really helped me understand the agency. It helped me then 
lead the agency. And when things happened, uh, whether they were disputes like it at, in Ferguson, Missouri, around my, the death of Michael Brown, or uh, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, when there was a shooting uh, by a white supremacist in 2012, I could turn back this book and see how people dealt with these issues, how CRS dealt with these issues in the past. I had a little bit of an ambition initially, which was 2014 was the 50th anniversary of the agency. And I said, wow, wouldn't it be great to produce an edition for the 50th anniversary? I, I, I learned that Bertram Levine had passed away. I got in contact with Bertram Levine's sons, uh, Neil Levine and David Levine. And we got to talking about it and I asked for permission uh, from them. They were thrilled by the idea. Uh, unfortunately, running an agency during a lot of crises at the time wasn't the best time to try to write a book. So I, I did not, I missed my deadline for about six years. Uh, I did not get, I did not get it written in 2014. Uh, it was after I left CRS uh, that I thought about the idea again uh, in doing that. And what really got me to get it done was that during the previous administration, the Trump administration, Trump uh, attempted to eliminate the agency, to zero out the agency. And I said, you know, I got to do something. I got to put my energy into some sort of constructive project because I valued the agency that I had been a part of for four years and it was under attack. So I said, let me let me finish this book before the election. I got it done in November in November and, and it's and it's been released and was released then. And the CRS still exists. It didn't get zeroed out by the budget. It, it did not, though it got hollowed out. Uh, there are less than half of the employees there than when I was there. Its headcount got reduced. A lot of folks retired or went to work somewhere else, unfortunately. Uh, under the Biden administration, I'm very hopeful uh, that its budget will be increased, that staffing will be increased. But it, of course, rely, we need folks to advocate for it. And, and the book has served that purpose in getting the story out uh, to folks who may not know about uh, CRS. So to, to start, I mean, this is this is a very long book. Um, it goes through, you know, it does go through 50 years of history, um, which is great. And it's it's really fascinating, granular sort of inter, introspection in a lot of different um, conflict events that, you know, I dot, have dotted my lifetime and your lifetime. Um, but can you explain to um, our audience a little bit about what the Community Relations Service was and why it was also specific that Johnson wanted this as part of the civil rights package? Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks, Lily. It really does match my lifetime. I was born in July 1964. It actually, the entire agency's lifetime has matched my lifetime. When we celebrated the 50th anniversary, it was on my actual birthday, my 50th birthday. So it was actually a stressful birthday. I was not focused on my own birthday whatsoever on that on that day. But uh, to, to your question, why did Lyndon Baines Johnson want, want it? Why was it included in the 1964 Civil Rights Act? I think really will shed a light into what it was about. And, you know, LBJ was a white Southern governor. He was actually considered an opponent on civil rights when he was when he was <clears throat> representing Texas. Um, he had he, he did have a strong belief as a negotiator. You know, he, he's well known for his buttonholing people and persuading them and using all the all the tools that a, that, that a politician has. 
And so, and he understood, so he understood the South, he understood the plight of, of Latinos. Uh, that's what he was familiar with, uh, growing, growing up. And he understood that. And he really changed, uh, when he became a national politician, uh, and he became Senate majority leader, he recognized uh, the need for civil rights. It was freeing for him to not, uh, in, in some, in some sense. And he, and he took full advantage of it, certainly when he was president in pursuing as as big a civil rights agenda as as any, you know, as any president, certainly in, in the last century. So uh, he, he had uh, he had pushed for it in previous civil rights bills. It did not come to pass. Then Birmingham happened uh, where there was the boycott in Birmingham by, by blacks residents of the white infrastructure of white businesses because they were not, they were, everything was segregated. They were not treated fairly. Uh, they could not be members of the police, the fire department. There were all these indignities uh, that blacks were facing. And it is a high watermark of the civil rights movement that the citizens of Birmingham exerted their economic power to desegregate Birmingham de facto, that they forced a state run by the, the well-known segregationist George Wallace to doing so. It happened, though, partly because of mediation. The, the assistant attorney general for civil rights, Burke Marshall, was personally instructed by, by Lyndon Baines Johnson to mediate. And he did so, and successfully so. When it came to then the future of civil rights, Burke Marshall, for example, agreed, oh, we should have an agency that does that, but it doesn't make sense for my component, the Civil Rights Division, to do that. It's taking away too much time. It's too exhausting to do. So that was one reason. Um, the, of course, the other reason was then, then LBJ really advocates for it. And the third important reason, I think, to note is that there was great fear. The 1964 Civil Rights Act is arguably, and by most accounts, the most important legislation of the 20th century. There was huge fear, though, because you're going to desegregate hotels, you're going to desegregate drive-ins, theaters, public accommodations, you're going to provide equal employment opportunities to, 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 to blacks. And there was fear that there was going to be litigation everywhere in the South. So they wanted an agency to focus on doing so on a voluntary basis. And again, Johnson, I think, didn't, you know, there was a mis there was great mistrust of, of, of the Justice, Justice Department at the time. Of litigators, so that was that's the background to how it then gets included in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, and and so, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which again has all of these other components that have much more, um, shall we say, focus, and people are more familiar with them. Um, the the CRS is to essentially come in to hot spots. It's it's kind of like paratroopers coming in, but peacemakers, as you say, that America's peacemakers, um, and and mediating tense situations. And originally, of course, the the brief was about race. Um, and then you talk about in the the additional parts of the book that that brief got expanded. Um, but could you talk a little bit about how how this actually works? <laughs> 
<laughs> how this actually works. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, it it was it's it was less well known, but you know, on the day that LBJ announces the passing of the Civil Rights Bill, the only substantive part he talks about is Title Ten about the creation of CRS, because the fear was that there would be all these issues uh, go, going on, um, uh, hostility, and it, a lot of it often unfounded, right? The fear of what black people will do, it was unfounded um, here. And and so the way that CRS operates, it's Title 10, it's, a, it's, a, it's done voluntarily. So a, com, a community group can request the, the, the use of, of CRS. There's no cost involved. This is provided uh, to, to folks. The service is confidential. So if CRS enters a community, uh, and let's say there's been a, a, a shooting of a, an unarmed black man by a police officer, for example, which is a, a prototype of the type of work CRS did, has done since, since 1964 and now 57 years, um, basically, you would get a call and then you would come in uh, and you would work confidentially, which means that you can't share information, confidential information gathered in the process of the work. In the Title 10, it's actually written that there is a year prison term and a $1,000 fine. I, I am happy to share that this has never happened. No one has, no CRS personnel has ever been uh, in jail uh, or fined $1,000, which, which hasn't, by the way, hasn't gone up with inflation uh, since then. It's still $1,000. So, and then it's about bringing together people and you can provide a service. It can be mediation, right? Which is classically bringing parties together to come to an agreement, perhaps again, in a, in a, in a use of force issue or when there's, it's, it's figuring out, okay, let's come to an agreement on how to, how to, to change a police department's use of force policy, for example, or transparency in providing information to a community. Uh, it could be a whole number of things. So that's the facility, that's the mediation part. It could just, it could also be training. It could be providing training. We created the first federal training on law enforcement interaction with transgender individuals. So the fact that it, we created this video at the time, which was groundbreaking, was to help law enforcement more effectively deal uh, because oftentimes they don't. Um, they don't interact well with individuals who are transgender. So it was a training video and a training program we provide. So you could provide, we could provide training in a context uh, as well. The other might be having a facilitation, uh, having a, a town hall. So it's facilitating dialogue here. Uh, for uh, example, you know, we'll go into a situation where there's been, a, in, and we did this in Ferguson, when there's a community outcry to organize a town hall and so that residents can get together. Uh, we did, you, if you remember from Ferguson, uh, this is when Michael Brown was killed. We were the first federal agency on the ground. We were, we were notified by a, a community group about it. And as you remember, there was some crime and, and, and looting going on. It was a big decision for whether the Attorney General Eric Holder would come uh, to, to, to Ferguson. And because there was a need to take action and to, to bring some peace, some at least temporary peace to the situation, Attorney General Eric Holder ultimately decided to go. And it was then up to CRS to actually uh, organize and convene four events 
uh, for him. So, and I flew in uh, to to Ferguson as well. One of those events was a town hall at Florissant Valley Community College, uh, a, a community college located within uh, Ferguson, and we met with local. We had local folks from Ferguson talking to the talking to the attorney general. I facilitated that. What I what I what I don't what I can't forget is. Um, Attorney General Holder standing in front of the group saying, you know, I am the Attorney General of the United States, uh, but I'm also a black man. And I experienced racial profiling uh, when I was driving down the New Jersey Turnpike. It was very powerful. We, we ran these events that day. We were still very concerned about what would happen that night. We were very concerned, given that every night there was, there was of course, a lot of peaceful protests, a lot of that. And I, I think that's so important to, to acknowledge. And there was certainly crime going on. There was certainly looting going on. We were all holding our collective breaths, but that night was the first night in many nights uh, that there was uh, there was peace uh, in that community, and and I think that you know what we did really made a difference there. And and so that's you know again this is the sort of parachuting in to do these different things either to facilitate or to provide some training or to essentially have I guess a kind of investigation into what the issues are. Um, but it's right. not- the one thing I would, uh, the one thing I would, um, edit there is that we didn't investigate because it was very important that we not be seen as either investigating or prosecuting because we don't do litigation. Our bet, our ability to have the space, the safe space is because we're not, and we, we have to be very clear because we were part of the CRS was part of the department of justice and you had FBI on the ground. You would often have FBI on the ground. You have the U S attorney, you'd have the civil rights division, whose job it was more to investigate, potentially prosecute for hate crimes or for other things. So it was always important. That's a great point that you bring up, Lily. The CRS's job was to, to peacefully resolve, to help, help the, give the community voice. That's what's really unique about CRS in terms of it may have been the first legislation to really help bring the community's voice to the table to make sure that you know, there's inequity of power. And how do we make sure community voices, community individuals can come to the table here and through mediation, facilitation and training our, our vehicles by which we, by which CRS did that. And I knew as I was saying, investigate that that was the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, and, and so this is also, I mean, you're a provost at a, a, um, institution of higher education. You have taught at law schools. Um, but this is the, the CRS is also kind of a, uh, an intersection of academic or sort of traditional scholarship and and sort of civic engagement and practice. Um, you know, in, in our vernacular, it's kind of a praxis point. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the ideas for facilitation and mediation, which are oftentimes seen as something we do on an international level as opposed to a domestic level, how that also works with not only the mandate for CRS, but also your particular experience and tenure there? That's a really appreciated question. I think an important one. It is praxis. It is very much this, the intersection of, of practice and theory uh, coming together. And I think CRS, it was one of the earliest mediation agencies in this country. Uh, it was based on, on and another important uh, federal mediation agency, which is the uh, FMCS, the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, 
uh, which is focused on specifically labor management uh, mediations. Actually, that's where Lyndon Baines Johnson got the idea was from FMCS. He then asked a future Supreme Court justice and UM ambassador, Arthur Goldberg, to write the legislation uh, about CRS. So, yeah, the ideas of labor management certainly come come into this. Just a, a, a quick side note is it people did not at the time some of the black, the black legislators and other progressive you know, white legislators didn't want to call it the mediation and conciliation service because they, they felt that was too accommodationist, too assimilationist. Uh, so that's why they went with community relations service as the, as the name of, of the agency. Uh, so from the very beginning, I think one example of, of that is uh, James Lowey uh, was a one of the early mediators and considered one of the greatest mediators of CRS. He had gotten a sociology PhD from Harvard. He had written his dissertation about the protest movement. He was actually an early, he was a freedom writer. He had worked closely with Andrew Young, who, who of course was a leader within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and of course, Martin Luther King, who is very, and they were very close. He joined CRS, and and that's why actually uh, they got very good access to the the civil rights leaders because uh, Martin Luther King once once told someone at CRS, "You guys are the only agency in the in the federal government that we trust." Uh, here. Uh, incidentally, James Lowey was in the room next door to Martin Luther King at the Lorraine Motel, uh, actually rooming with Andrew Young, uh, which would, I'm not sure that would happen today where a federal government official would be rooming next door. But, you know, in that sad tragedy, um, uh, James Lowey was there. He, when he, he then leaves CRS, he starts a number of academic programs around conflict res- resolution, including the George Mason, which what now is known as the Carter School, and and wrote very much about the uh, about the theory about thinking about uh, about conflict resolution, the, and especially about that tension or the, the the aspiration toward peace and justice. And this is true for others like Wallace Warfield, who also becomes a professor at George Mason, who wrote very eloquently about how conflict resolution is a means of, of achieving social justice. Sometimes we think they're intention. Sometimes we think conflict resolution is a means to maintain the status quo or to suppress confrontation or conflict. And they were very much at the vanguard of the thinking that, no, uh, conflict resolution is an important tool to achieve social social justice. And and um, as, as you note, and we've sort of talked a little bit about this, that CRS obviously was part of the Civil Rights Act and was solely focused on um, racial issues and and racial conflict, but it has subsequently had its um, mandate expanded. Uh, And as you noted already that there's, you know, training with regard to police treatment of transgendered individuals and so forth. But can you talk a little bit about how that, that sort of shift in its, in its focus from solely being on racial conflict, which we still have um, to expanding out into religious and ethnic and sexual orientation and so forth? Yes, I'd be happy to. And it also mirrors the way other groups modeled their approach towards civil rights on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? The civil Rights Act is primarily on race, primarily focused then, right, on the, the inequities, the, the historic decades-long, centuries-long inequities toward Black Americans. 
and other groups, women, uh, religious minorities, uh, Latinx people, Asian Americans, then model what they do uh, on that. And so because of, of that increased civil rights approach by various groups that had been historically oppressed or historically discriminated against, uh, there was a desire to expand the jurisdiction of, of CRS. And where that happens is the 2009 Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. I'm sure many of your listeners are, remember Matthew Shepard, who was a young man who was gay, who was killed in, in Laramie. Uh, and became a, a symbol of, of anti-gay violence here. James Byrd Jr. was a black man who was really horrifically killed um, in, by, by a, a number of white men uh, in, in a tragic, a really tragic killing. And that 2009 law gave CRS the jurisdiction for the first time to move beyond race, color, and national origin to also then work on issues of gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, religion, and disability issues uh, for the first time. And it was, it was groundbreaking and I think important to reflect this country and the stories that we have and the challenges uh, that we face uh, and using those same tools, uh, using, using training, cultural competency, uh, as we, we talked about, as I've talked about to you earlier, as I mentioned to you earlier, in terms of dealing with the transgender issue, I thought it was important. That was something I really focused on during my time to, to focus on that issue by providing training, providing also you, in, during the same time, you provide other, you bring other agencies of civil rights division, FBI to talk about. Here's, here's what we're doing around these, around hate crimes issues. Of course, it's very relevant today uh, because of the increase in anti-Asian hate that has really been you know, tragic. And I, it's, it's, it's particularly hard for me since I am an Asian American and I've seen what's happened. I've seen the incidents that have happened to family members um, uh, as, as well. And I think it's CRS, I think is going to take an even more, can take a, a, a big role in this and certainly in other issues uh, as, as well. And, and sort of also thinking about how the federal government works, the, the CRS is inside the Justice Department. So it's not an, a, quote, independent agency, um, which, you know, is for political scientists. It's like inside baseball talk. Um, but um, but it, it operates kind of in its own sphere. Um, and you talk about this in, in the book because it's really focused on the job that the folks inside CRS are doing and sometimes disconnected in a, in a very disconnected way from the Justice Department. But it's under that umbrella, which also includes the FBI um, and other agencies. Can you talk how that sort of structural positioning works? Yeah, that's that's a I hope. Yeah, this is a, I'm sure a political science question, but it's you know, it's an it's important one. It's important one to understanding how any agency works and how any agency is successful here. And interestingly, Initially, the, the CRS was not in Department of Justice. It was in commerce. Uh, and the idea there, the reasoning was partly it was LBJ being LBJ thinking like, oh, 
a lot of people don't trust, the, a lot of people in the South do not trust the Department of Justice, right? We know this because of, of James Meredith, Mississippi, and the Freedom Riders. There are so many things that um, DOJ was often seen as the bad guy uh, to them, to, 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 to those folks. So it was placed in commerce, partly due to the interstate commerce piece of it, but author also because a former white Southern governor uh, was in charge of, uh, of commerce and a former white Southern governor, Leroy Collins, who was governor of Florida, was put in charge of CRS. They thought that would be and that would be make it easier for them to operate in the South. Uh, basically, that was a big part of it. And to have the independence over over time, though, LBJ came to the realization that uh, it would be better that DOJ could, would be more useful because it was more accurate. There was also a concern that the it goes to the federal agencies like other Department of Justice agencies. Well, what, what's CRS doing? You know, it, it happened in in Selma uh, when CRS was a, a, a very large player in preventing violence uh, in the march from Selma to Montgomery and and working with uh, working with Martin Luther King and and John Lewis, of course. Uh, in in the march from Selma to to Montgomery, so it was placed in the, into the Department of Justice. It 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 now reports today uh, reports to the Associate Attorney General, uh, as as do other agencies. But as per my earlier comment of not investigating, it's incredibly important that CRS has its independence because what what's going on in FBI, what's going on in the Civil Rights Division. We want to be set. CRS wants to be separate from that because anything said to CRS, as I as we as I talked about earlier, is confidential. So it has to stay confidential, and it's much easier. And it's much easier to explain to people in the community, especially that yeah, what CRS does is different from what the Civil Rights Division does, different from what the FBI does, in order to maintain the independence necessary to to, to to be to be a safe space at some level, to have the trust, to have the conversation. And this is true of law enforcement too. Having conversations with a chief of police, uh, it's going to be important that the chief of police doesn't think that there is some problem of what they say will then be picked up by the civil rights division or the U.S. attorney as well. So that so that's an important distinction, an important structural uh, decision, uh, important structurally to that everybody understand that and that, that it operate as such. And and I wanted to ask you a little bit also with regard to your own tenure when you were there. Um, and you, you sort of start the book by talking about you were about to fly to D.C. to get to meet your staff. You'd been sworn in in California, but you're about to fly to D.C. and the um, the shooting in Oak Creek, um, about 15 miles from where I'm sitting right now, uh, happened. And um, and suddenly you were in Dallas sort of troubleshooting this. Um, and then, as you say, you know, you sort of spent a lot of your tenure with regard to the violence that had been that that was then perpetrated against uh, African-American men, um, mostly by police. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of got into this with your, you know, running, unfortunately, um, and and that you also had a an expanded brief um, because of what you were then facing as the director of CRS? Right. Yeah, that was it. I was I was sworn in by an HR employee in, a, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco. Just him and me. wasn't wasn't anything fancy. And uh, I was at, headed then that weekend uh, in in, 
it was in 2012 to to Dallas. It's actually where the we were having our all staff meeting uh, to to meet in Dallas. And as I was getting into my plane at SFO, I looked at the monitor and I saw that there was a shooting uh, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, at a Sikh Gurdwara or, or, or Sikh temple there. And uh, when I landed in Dallas and I met with the staff, it was in they were in full operation uh, because. Partly because of 9-11 during the Bush administration, CRS had taken a charge. I think very, very much a I think this is a a plaudit to to the Bush administration. They didn't want backlash violence against Arabs, Muslims and and Sikhs. And and Bush, as you remember, was very was very mindful of that and and openly and explicitly said, we do not want this. You know, as a country, we stand for something patriotic and positive. Uh, so for, for a number of years, CRS had worked with Muslim groups, uh, Sikh groups, other Indian groups as well, because of the concern about, about violence, uh, you know, again, inappropriate and, and unreasonable violence about that. So with Oak Creek, we, we actually had worked with the, 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 the head of that temple. So we actually knew them. Um, and went right into operation by because there were rumors of a second shooter in that situation. There were a lot of issues. The uh, the temple had become a crime scene, so you couldn't uh, you could not uh, practice. You could not worship there. So a, a town hall was organized to help reassure the community. Uh, about two hundred fifty sh- people showed up. Uh, CRS worked with the U.S. Attorney Jim Santel from 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 the area. And there again, you know. W- with the Sikh community and Sikh tradition, there are very specific traditions that are that make them sometimes more of targets because they have the turban, they, they have the sacred dagger called the kirpan, and it was also helping law enforcement with cultural sensitivity in working through these issues. It was uh, through through problem solving, uh, troubleshooting dialogues. It was helping those who were in the hospital get visits from friends rather than relatives because the relatives were in India. Uh, so it was reopening, it was trying to reopen more quickly the temple to be worshipped at. Um, the first lady then, Michelle Obama, made a visit uh, to Oak Creek. So I, I along with uh, Harpreet Singh Mocha, uh, we we actually then went to, uh, we actually briefed them, make sure the team, first lady and her team were sensitive, culturally sensitive when they met with uh, folks in Oak Creek and at the Sikh, uh, Sikh Gurdwara as well. Uh, you know, and I think an important thing here is to also recognize it's also about the recovery and healing of a community too. And Oak Creek has done a really terrific job uh, in terms of healing and the community coming together and seeing the, the, the their Sikh neighbors, their Sikh, their, 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 res, their, their neighbors and being working together, not othering them in any way, saying, how can we help our, our, our neighbors, you know, people that we live and work, work with here? Uh, and so I think that became important. It also became important to improve hate crime reporting. There was no category for seek when you do hate crimes reporting, when a police officer tries to report a hate crime. So the country would have no idea how bad it was against Sikhs or uh, in, in that situation. So we worked with the Civil Rights Department, the FBI, uh, with families 
in changing that. And, in, and, and for Robert Mueller, the, the, the then director of the FBI, on one of his last days prior to his leaving the FBI, he signed, uh, he signed, the, signed off that, that, that Sikh and other religious categories would be added to it. So it's also a matter of a rising by a boat lifts, lifts, lifts all, right? Or lifts in that others. It, it was used as a way to help really understand hate crimes better. And I think that's important as we think about certainly the anti-Asian hate and, and how to respond. And once we move beyond the shock and the, the heartbreak, uh, how, to, how to work on this. Uh, for example, uh, Senator Maisie Hirono and Congresswoman Meng have a, some legislation on COVID-19 related hate crimes. Uh, again, what do you do to, to, to prevent this from happening again? And, and that was going to be my next question, because as you noted earlier, you have, in fact, been involved in, in your current capacity, but also coming out of your experience at the CRS with regard to responding to and working with communities around these questions, particularly with this rise, dramatic rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year with regard to COVID. Can you talk a little bit about your own um, experience doing some of this work right now? Sure. Uh, you know, and this, this is a little bit harder. I mean, um, in, in the sense that, you know, one of the, we, we certainly know of what happened in Atlanta, uh, which is, which is, you know, the, the, the shooter drives to three different Asian owned businesses, shoots six women, of eight of out of the eight uh, of, of Asian descent, and it's just you know let's not get wrapped up and focus on the perpetrator. Like let's let's I, I, let, and get caught up in oh what was the intent, what's the motivation. We know the impact. We know the impact at a time when there's been such a rise in anti Asian hate and anti Asian violence. Right, the Stop AAPI Hate Project has recorded thirty eight hundred incidents of anti Asian. Uh, sentiment being conveyed uh, in the last year since COVID-19. Uh, and it particularly hit home for me because one of the first tragedies that really broke through happened in San Francisco to a Mr. Vicha Ratanapakti. And he was shoved uh, and shoved so hard that he died uh, from that. He was 84 year, years old. That happened steps uh, from my from my, the house that I grew up in in San Francisco and so that that's what makes it hard and uh, so and, and personally for me you know, you know my daughter who again you try to protect your kids uh, from this sort of thing and sometimes we think we're, you know, we're, we're doing that out of what happened in our in our own or our parents uh, lifetime and you know she was working at a booth in New York trying to get people to convert. She's very big into environmental, uh, sustainable energy and climate change and was working on people uh, switching where they get their source of their utility to, to solar and wind. And some college kids in masks you know, came up to her and, sh and started yelling things in, in like Kung Fu and all these uh, sort of things. And, and she was scared, right? She was scared for her life. And as a father, I, I feel it's a hard feeling uh, to, to doing so. So, and so even though I've done the work, uh, you know, I did the work at CRS and at the Divided Community Project at Ohio State, which I love to chat about a little bit as well, which which is really I think taken this work and focused on preparation and is doing a lot with polarized communities in this country. Um, it's feel it's different when it's of course your child or your your, your parent uh, that, that is targeted. 
And, and, and it's in all of our communities. It's not, it's not, it's not um, in a particular place. It's, it's everywhere because Asian Americans are part of the fabric of America. Right. Um, they are, they are our neighbors and our coworkers. And, um, and it's, it is hard uh, at a moment where people, yeah, no matter where they are in America, whether in populous Asian American cities like San Francisco Bay area, or yeah, in, in, in a small rural town uh, in, in Wisconsin or wherever there are, and in some ways, you know, we have, I have the privilege of, of being able to not have to be in the front line in a grocery store or, uh, you know, uh, and so I, I've been driving everywhere. I, you know, I get, I get things delivered by Amazon. I'm really concerned about the, the people who don't have that luxury or that privilege, to, to, to be honest. I mean, yeah. those are people who are more at risk here. Um, and so I did want to ask you a little bit about the project at OSU and some of the other um, institutions that have sort of come up in this context of, you know, sort of mediation and facilitation as the means for doing justice and getting to justice. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about the Divided Community Project at OSU, but it is one of a number. Um, so if you could sort of talk about it as an example of some of these others as well. Yeah, so the, the Divided Community Project at The Ohio State uh, Uni University uh, is a project f founded by some of the law professors at the Moritz College of Law, uh, Nancy Rogers, uh, Josh Stolberg, uh, Bill Froelich, Sarah Cole, uh, have been very engaged uh, in really trying to, especially, you know, certainly during the previous administration, trying to fill in the gap uh, that, that, that existed, but really focused on preparation of communities, of universities, uh, and now state attorney generals as well in how to bring these tools, uh, how to bring the tools of dispute resolution to helping communities, to helping faith leaders uh, in terms of being prepared for this, right? The way that we we can respond better. We don't control what the, the rest of the world does or what a few crazed individuals do. What people can control is what they do, that, that political leaders, that governmental leaders, that law enforcement leaders, that community and civil rights leaders speak out within a community and, 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 and stand by their neighbors, whoever they are, right? Uh, whether they're black or Latinx or Asian American, that that's what matters and that they're ready, that they're providing socially, cultural, culturally sensitive social services to, to work with people who have been victimized, uh, to really do, focus on prevention, to help uh, mosques and Sikhs and Christian churches to prepare for possible, to, to protect their houses of worship, right? To have a plan uh, to, to doing so and how to take care of their elderly. Uh, so the, I think the Vida Community Project has certainly uh, been uh, at the, the forefront of, of much of that. I, I would also certainly give a shout out to community mediation centers um, who, who, who do work at that intersection of, of dispute resolution, of consensus building, of race and social justice. Uh, they rose also within the 60s with the same idea of CRS that how do we bring the community in to, to solve their, the, the issues of, of what goes on in a, in a neighborhood, right? Rather than calling the cop how do we resolve it? How can we resolve it in a in a, in a neighborly neighborly way? And and how can and I think that's important at a time where it's it's become harder to have conversations uh, around many things, uh, in, including race and and politics. I think they're incredibly important to cr helping us cross 
uh, that the, the, the divide uh, as 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 well. Uh, civil rights organizations, uh, you know, I think they they bring the skill of understanding the justice portion of of, of it and how to be um, how to be helpful. So. Asian Americans Advancing Justice is an organization that's been providing bystander training, um, and it's been it's I've been it's really they've been really successful. What happens if you see someone being uh, insulted or taunted, uh, no matter what their if it's because of religion or disability or or, or or other aspects of their identity? How do you help? How do you respond in a way uh, that that's helpful too? So. Uh, there are a, another organization called Not in Our Town. NIOT is a terrific organization. Uh, full disclosure, I'm on their board uh, as well. And I and but they have worked on creating video on working with communities on how to respond to hate, how to prevent hate within your community. And I think they have done tremendous work uh, on these issues as as well. Um, I, I wanted to turn your attention a little bit to the book project itself, which is an interesting and fairly unique undertaking that you did, because um, it wasn't just, you know, a textbook that gets an update because an election happens, um, that you took an already written book by Bertrand Levine, and you added 20 years to it. <laughs> um, and since he had passed on, you also sort of worked in hand, somewhat in hand in hand with his sons. Um, and you, you did all kinds of things, not only adding substantive chapters to more of the history of CRS, but you also had to make decisions about particular words, um, which I found to be interesting as I was reading the preface and so forth. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the project itself and, and, and what it was like? Yeah, it, like I'm sure for you as a, an author and for, for many of the guests that you interview each Every book has a life of its own and its own journey. And it's been incredibly rewarding and heartwarming and fundamentally affected me in ways I never would have imagined, to, to, to be frank about it. You know, again, Bertram Levine had passed away. I had approached the sons, David and, and Neil Levine, and they were terrific and incredibly supportive uh, of, of the process uh, here. And it turned out that Neil Levine, I kind of a little bit of following his father's footsteps, uh, is a, his work is in international conflict management. Uh, and you talked about international conflict management. But one of the bigger audiences for the book has has been uh, a lot of peace peacemakers, conflict resolution folks in in international space. And of course, a lot of them are thinking about you know all the work they did internationally. What's going on here in this country? <laughs> you know what, what we have such polarization, such division, such conflict we should be spending more time here. So I, that, that's a, that's a community that I very much have enjoyed being in conversation with. So uh, w- with the book, it was hard because like, well, what do I add and how do I make, I want to make sure to honor uh, what Bertram did. You, Bertram did. It's such a wonderful book. And I was a bit intimidated to say, well, you know, I can, how can I, how can I do justice to it? Which was really, I think, really about bringing voice to the people who had done this work in anonymity and sort of behind the scenes and really doing it right, right? really showing what an impact and a difference they made here. 
the other thing I would say, though, if he hadn't written the book, I think I would have been intimidated. But I don't think I want to write about 50 years of history. I'm not sure I would have taken that on either. So, you know, it works both ways, I guess. Um, so it's been ter- it's you know, it's and it's given. So it's it was also, you know, you talked about the language and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Right. What terms do we use? Uh, today to describe different identity groups was different than 2005 and certainly different from before that. So I I definitely had long conversations um, uh, about that. We tried to update it. I I certainly made sure it got okayed by Neil and David. And and very much, I mean, I remember uh, Neil saying, you want to, language is about respect. Language is about the the language that people want, the terms that people are referred to matter to them. It's also a matter of power, right? Who gets the ability to, to label and to, to determine who they are? And so, uh, you know, we very much did that and we updated, updated it. For example, uh, we, we would often use African-American uh, versus, versus Negro uh, for Asian-American. The chapter that was interesting was really, and again, I, I'm, it, it's, it reflects the language of the time when we talk about wounded knee and not just saying Indian, but to say the actual tribe that they were from. Uh, it was it was actually just a fascinating to go through the whole book to look at each each term and try your best uh, to, to, to bring it up to date and fresh. But language is changing. I'm you know, it, it is it is it is an evolving thing. Um, uh, as as well, so it's been wonderful to get to to know Neil and David. I, I feel like a little bit a part of their family now. Um, we've been doing uh, we've we've done web we've, in this COVID era. We've been doing everything via Zoom, uh, which has in some ways been helpful, in some ways been 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 hard. But I've uh, gotten to know some of their family and friends, and uh, you know that's been been wonderful. Uh, the other thing I want I want to say is it's also providing. I didn't do a lot of it and I tried to keep it down, but provide some response to some of the earlier chapters to reflect what's gone on in, in, in 15 years here. Uh, for example, on the minority police relations issue, in some ways, Levine had a, a little rosier conclusion that things have gotten better and we hope for the day when it's passed. And we know that hasn't been that that smartphones and this new generation of activists has brought it back to the forefront. And we were just suppressing much of it. We were, we were hiding things around it. And I want to, to speak to that, you know, a bit as well to make sure that, you know, there was some commentary of it. And so it, you know, it, it, it it's, and it's been really wonderful to get the feedback some, some from readers about how much they appreciate it this and that this may create a new genre of books that there the uh, George Lopez uh, who's a professor a, a really renowned professor of international peace studies said oh there are several other books that I think this should be done to as well that I'd like to see a, a, an updated version to really give a fuller sense of the history and a, and a broader scope of, of civil rights and specifically of community civil rights conflict resolution yeah it's it's a fascinating sort of um history that's extended that you that you've sort of extended the history and in places as you say in the the issue around um policing and particularly african-american communities that there was a need to really pay more attention to where the book had stopped 
um, because it was, you know, it was at that point 20 years ago, but that it's now distinct. And you did add that extra chapter that I mentioned before we started talking to in the recording that you added a back chapter um, historically uh, with regard to the Nazis in Skokie. Um, that was something that I remember from my childhood. Um, and as opposed to a lot of the other chapters, which were sort of what's happened since the book was published, this was to go back and re re-explain that situation. Can you just talk for a couple of minutes about why that particular instance, which was not in the original book, was something you thought was important to include in this in this edition? Yeah, so uh, for for a couple reasons. Um, one is because of what's happened in the country since. Uh, we can certainly focus on Charlottesville and and, and what happened there. Uh, some of the the the, the rise of anti-Semitism, white nationalism, uh, white supremacy. And I think that was a big reason. And Dick Salem, who was the conciliator, what we call a mediator, the official term within the agency is conciliator, uh, was really one of the, I think, most accomplished conciliators that CRS had. And when I came across an article that he wrote about what happened I just thought, um, wow, you know, I, I really should add this, a, a chapter on this. And it's the only addition to the book that goes before 1989. Um, but because of that, I, let me give a little bit of backstory for those uh, of your listeners who may not be as familiar uh, with this. Skokie is a suburb of Chicago. Uh, at the time, it had a very high Jewish population and likely, at least from what I researched, the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors uh, in, in, in the country uh, as, as well. And there was a Nazi group uh, uh, headed by Frank Collin, who actually was likely Jewish himself, uh, who, who was protesting and again using, he was, it was never a big group, it was never more than 15, 18 people, but he created a lot of controversy. He appeared on the uh, Donahue show, and for some folks may be familiar uh, with that. And he wanted the protest in Chicago. He wanted the group protest in Chicago. was not granted the permit to doing so. So he, he sent out all these letters to all the surrounding areas uh, to, to, to request a, a, a permit to, to protest uh, his Nazi group. Yeah, and by the way, the, I think important to recognize why they got some traction and attention was because they were trying to prevent black residents from moving into white neighborhoods. I think that's an important point uh, to, to put into this uh, as, as well. And there was support because there were a lot of white folks who didn't want uh, black people moving in, into the Chicago suburb and into Chicago neighborhoods at the time. Uh, so because. So there, you know, he's he, the the city manager of Skokie was the only person to respond to to this group, and so that's why Skokie got targeted. If he had just not sent a letter, nothing would have happened. It was it was such an uh, you know so it's not it's always when you go into history. I'm sure you you know you know this lady's like oh you, you learn these things like wow something would never have happened but for this one thing. Um, but of course, Skokie they they refused to to have it. Um, Frank Collin gets an attorney at the ACLU to, 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 to uphold the Nazi First Amendment right to free speech. David Goldberger is the attorney, and, and someone who's Jewish, was Jewish, is Jewish as well, 
who I had a chance to talk to, uh, who I think was very heroic, to be honest, uh, in his work here uh, as well. And CRS gets involved and nobody wants to talk to the to the Nazi, right? Nobody. And, and so there is great fear at the time. And, and Lily, it was interesting to hear about the fact that your parents were lawyers and that they were that you lived in Skokie. So, you know, a lot of this backstory from living it uh, uh, here. But the, the long and short of it is that be, nobody talks it, but only the CRS team uh, led led by Dick Salem talks to all the different parties. All the Jewish groups refuse to talk to him. Uh, David Goldberger is focused on the interest of the client and the the, the right to protest. Uh, But it's really, it it becomes dangerous, right? There's a lot of death threats on Frank Collin, but Collin, it's a a face thing, right? You're not going to back down, but it's really CRS and really Salem that find a, find a way to get him to not protest. He wins the case. How I've become familiar with the case is the famous Supreme Court constitutional case that upholds the right. He wins the case. Frank Collin wins the the case. ACL wins the case that Nazis have the First Amendment right to free speech. So, uh, but that doesn't mean you should protest. That doesn't mean you should do it. And that's what happens. Uh, Collin, because of of the, the CRS team, agrees not to protest ultimately uh, here in this case. And, and uh, Salem always credited to the idea that um, it, was, it was his willingness to talk and listen and understand. The, and I think it's important, really important, because a lot of people say, well, I would never negotiate with Nazis, right? I, I, how, why would you? You're compromising your most important values. I'm not going to talk with a person who, who hates my very existence. What, what I think is important, and I think the importance of interventionists is the goal is not always an agreement. The, the, the goal is not always to, to compromise your values. This was not what this was about. For, for Salem, for CRS, it was about safety. It was maintaining safety and, and doing this to prevent the loss of life. And that's what they succeeded. I, Salem would never say he agreed for, for, with anything uh, that Colin said, right? Not at, not at all, but that was important. And I think that's what made a difference in that, in that situation. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it was, it was a long time ago, but I do remember some of the conversations around the dinner table and at synagogue and so forth. Um, and so Grant, what are you working on now that you finished this magnum opus? <laughs> uh, Besides being provost. Well, being provost <laughs> is pretty busy, as you know. I mean, in college these days, we're all facing a lot of challenges, uh, online learning, hybrid, high flex, um, you know, and there's a lot of burnout. I think we've all been on too many video conference calls. I mean, I was our president was talking today, like maybe we should have a Friday Zoom free day. Uh, I think that's a terrific idea. And we're, we're going to practice that today. I think uh, today's a Friday. Uh, so uh, but it's important. I think, you know, higher education is 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 taking a shot here, you know, it, and and we need to make sure that it comes out of this in a really uh, re- resilient, re- resilient form. I'm, you know, I, and I'm, you know, I, and I certainly have been working a little bit on the anti-Asian uh, hate issue. Uh, certainly, we want to make sure all our students are safe. And again, coming back to the university, we want to make sure all our students feel safe too, and that the, uh, um, no, no matter what their their background and 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 difference here. 
so you know that that's all that is is keeping me uh, f- fairly busy. I'm certainly talking to doing podcasts, uh, talking, doing doing interviews, and it's been an important time to do it, given what's going on in the world, given what's going on with Black Lives Matter and. And Breonna Taylor, the George Floyd uh, trial is—I should say that the trial, the police officer who killed uh, who killed George Floyd, is going on. So there's—I think we have to be. You know, there is all that as we're as we're grappling with what does social justice mean uh, to today as 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 well. So um, you know, a lot of things we are working on. I think a lot of good things, and, I, and I'm looking forward for all of us to being in person in in the fall uh, as as well. I think you're not the only one looking forward to that. (laughs) Um, It has been a pleasure to talk to a grand lum today about America's peacemakers, the community relations service and civil rights that he wrote with, in an interesting way, Bertram Levine. Um, This is published by University of Missouri Press in 2020. I believe it can be purchased at the University of Missouri Press website, where it is now available or will soon be available in paperback. Is that correct? I w- agreed. And one, the one addition I would make is that if you go to the promo code on the University of Missouri website, uh, you can just put PEACE30, all caps, P-E-A-C-E-30, and you'll get 30% off the paperback edition. I- I'd also encourage people to look uh, to our book website, www.peace. Uh, Peacemakers, America's Peacemakers. I should get that. America's Peacemakers.org. America's with an S, Peacemakers with an S as well.org. Okay, I will definitely put it in the blurb so everybody knows the correct website. And I would just want to thank you, Grant, for joining me today. Thank you, Lily, for having me. It's my pleasure.